0: Hey guys, so a listener wrote in and said that they saw the new documentary about Amy Winehouse, and the whole time she was wondering what we would have to say about this, because, because we talk about movies sometimes, you know? And so I thought, hey, let's all go see the documentary, and let's talk about it on the podcast. So we all went and saw the documentary, the movie, and now we're ready to talk about it. Are you guys ready to talk about the documentary? Let's do it. Ready. Uh, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a practicing therapist.
1: My name is Paulette Perhatch. I am a Seattle writer.
2: And my name is Humberto Castaneda. I am a bodyguard for a starlet
0: who's on troubled times lately? Interesting. That's an interesting parallel. So um, I thought I would start with just what I knew about Amy Winehouse before she died, before the documentary. I thought we might talk, I thought we might just go in sequential order here. Okay. So what I knew about her was her song Rehab. I remember hearing that song. It was huge in what, like, 2007 or eight or something. That's right. And I remember seeing pictures of her and I saw someone who was marketing herself as a tattooed retro rebel. You know, it was like she, she had an interesting combination of things. She was like low class England and she was tattooed, but she was singing these super old jazz tunes, but her hair was like 60s bouffant beehive kind of thing. <laughs> Um, She had all these really interesting visual
2: elements to her. The first time I heard of Amy Winehouse was also when I heard the song Rehab. I had not heard about her before. And I got to say that until I saw the movie, honestly, I think that might be the only song I ever heard of hers. Really? Yeah. And I had an impression about her that was really negative. Uh, yeah. I'm not that? saying the documentary, actually, I'm not, I don't want to spoil the party, but I will say this. My preconceived notion of her was actually that it was another front, like a Lady Gaga type front. Like, she was faking. Um, I know, I, I, I didn't think she was faking being dysfunctional, because I kind of got the sense like, man, this this is a train wreck. But I also got the sense like, she was proud of it or something. Right. And this, by the way, from like, probably five seconds of media that I might have ever seen about her, right. and the song itself. Right. And I, I felt that the song itself was kind of like, so transparent. Like Because I, I, at first, I was like, I thought it might be like, you know, tongue in cheek, like, no, she's not really. But then, uh, just a the little bit I read at the time, I remember thinking... Wait, if this is true and this is the song you got big about and then you're proud of this or something, like "What what a double train wreck. That's what I
0: remember. I remember thinking that too.
1: Man, all right. Firstly, I love Amy Winehouse. I love her music. I didn't really know who she was when I enjoyed her music. And there's one of the most important things in art, I think, is that there's a difference between the art and the artist. So, like, I love Kanye West's music. Do I like some of his actions? Not so much. So, what I loved was her music. And... I just, I didn't think she was marketing herself at all. I just thought she seemed so real. Back in the day? Back in the day. And I felt pleased that who I th- got a sense that she was, she actually was. It wasn't like Lana Del Rey where it's like, well, this kind of music career didn't work for you. Let's take you into the shop and install some lips and some other things. <laughs> and then Did- we'll put you out as a totally different kind of person. And it's like, to me, that's not art. And so I think that she was really a real artist.
2: Did you, so so you had heard some of her music prior to uh, Rehab coming out?
1: Um... I'm not sure of the chronology. You know, it's kinda hard. I'm really bad at keeping up with music. I'm just like whatever's on Spotify or here on the radio or other people playing. So I'm not sure exactly when I started listening to our music, but I have a really funny story about rehab. I can tell you guys later. I'll <laughs> later tell on. Her the I'll tell it now. Tell it now. Okay, so um my mom loved that song Rehab. Like <laughs> and she did her like mom clap to it. She's so cute. And <laughs> so she would always listen to it and then We were, it was years later, the song was already old, and my mom's mom was dying, and... We were driving in the car, like from the home where she was dying to, you know, back to this other house. And my mom was, you know, obviously really sad. And she was just like, but we put on that Amy Winehouse song. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Amy Winehouse had already died. And I was like, I don't know, mom. She really should have gone to rehab. Uh My mom was just like, I don't care. I just, I need to hear it. So we just put on rehab Uh and it was like this. I don't know. Like, I think that it was just a real song about what was really going on in her life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All things. Yeah. Did you know the other songs? Were you... did So you listened to her album? Yeah. Back I
1: really to Black. liked Back to Black. And okay. I just especially like sad music like Bon Iver and just like soulful... I'm sad music, yeah. Um, like Ray LaMontagne. I just asked my boyfriend to change. I'm like, can we listen to some Ray LaMontagne? He's like, it's not Suicide Hour. I was just like, <laughs> fine. That's pretty much my entire taste. Suicide or you're drinking yourself to death.
0: Yeah, I, I'm more like Berto. I, I knew rehab. I had seen pictures of her, uh, and I heard jokes about her on TV, and she was often a punchline. And then I remember seeing a, a bad video of her where she's, or a picture or something on the internet, where she was so drunk or high or something that and she was so bulimic that her her panties were falling down while she was singing on stage. Have you seen this footage? No.
1: Oh god, so she, ugly.
0: She's so intoxicated, and she's singing, and she's so emaciated that her you know her previously snug panties were were slowly falling down her legs, and you know she wore really short skirts, what? and she's just sitting there on stage singing, and her panties are are like saggy, Slide, sli- sliding down. Not like far, but like... But saggy, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like she I mean, not but yeah. She was so intoxicated, she didn't know. And she's on stage in front of tens of thousands uh, of people. Yeah, that's yeah. so
1: bad. It's like why I'm glad there weren't camera phones when I was in high school. Yeah. It was like, oh, God. Because your panties were saggy. videos that <laughs> would have, no, but equally inappropriate, crazy, yeah. weird stuff. Which is another
0: element of this documentary. It's like, now, whenever anyone dies, we're going to have hours and hours of footage to make a documentary about that. That is actually
2: fascinating. I was thinking about something while I was watching the movie. You know how they show a, a lot of scenes. They make a point of it, I think, of showing the paparazzi uh yeah. barrage. Yeah. A few things went through my head. One of them was, is it still like that? Meaning, do more and more of them use digital cameras, for example, where you might not hear so many clicks and things like that? Are are the clicks the flashes? And if the flashes are the clicks, are there different kinds of flashes nowadays that are? I mean, it's. I know it's only been five years, but like in those five years, like a lot of shit has changed, you know. Um, And so I'm wondering, is it still like that? Because that alone can drive someone
0: mad. It is because in order to take even a digital photograph at night, or even like Twilight you uh-huh. need a flash and is that what makes the sound no it's it's the camera and Slash.
2: digital SLRs still,
0: still make that still have a mechanism ha. that slaps okay
2: well because the, 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 yeah, the other thing yeah. that, that I was thinking about it was at first I was like god these you know vicious leeches right and then I was thinking we wouldn't have a documentary without a lot of this
0: this footage well so it was kind of like a, a, a give and take for me not me it was all take it was all terrible <laughs> but you watched I, the movie you were there I actually had to not not look at the screen while they were doing those because just watching it was...
1: Oh, all the flashes?
0: My brain was going... To goo, yeah. I mean, I, and I, I was like, I can't imagine being ground zero on that. like I mean, that
1: time. is something that you could do as a form of torture when you're interrogating someone. Yeah. Just have a bunch of flashing lights. I right. think they do that with. I, I mean, let I the c- bodies hit the floor is actually the song I just learned. They play.
2: <laughs> I could see them passing some regulations, like, look, you can't have more than n number of uh, people in an area when blah blah blah. But I was thinking, I mean, it is capitalism at its probably worst. And yet, I will stand by this one comment, which is that uh, a lot of the footage they had was, in fact, from those kind of uh, moments. Right. That's so, true.
1: It's so weird. It's like when Kurt Cobain's diaries were published. I picked it up at a bookstore and I was like, oh my God, Like I get to know what Kurt Cobain was thinking about. And Like, diary. And then I just opened the first page and read the first line. And I was like, ugh. It made me feel horrible. And I just put it back on the shelf. So, I don't know. And one thing that struck me was how they... I like when they update you with what age she is at certain points. And you're just like, she was 23. And you're just like, oh my God, she's 23. Like, I think back to what I was doing at 23. And would I want cameras following me everywhere? (laughs) It's like, no.
0: Yeah. But the last little bit I'll say that I knew about her before uh, watching this documentary was Berto, you remember Lita, right? Yep. Our first lovely Lita. The first Paulette was was our my 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 friend from from uh, preschool, Lita Katibi. She was the third co host of psychology in Seattle. She was there in the beginning and she is a singer. And, Great singer. And she loved Amy Winehouse and sings a lot like Amy Winehouse and oh. has a similar style to her. And uh, back in the day, I was in a cover band called the Living Room Butchers. Because I was in a, me and Berto were in all these bands where we had all this tech stuff and videos and lights and like electronic stuff and computers and videos and like everything was just super complicated. And so after that, I just wanted to like play music in my living room with friends and we butchered songs. And so we were the living room butchers (laughs) and Lita, one of my friends came over and we butchered rehab. We played rehab in my living room. And, um, and I remember thinking that Lita was very similar to Amy Winehouse in terms of her vibe musically ah. And then when I watched the documentary, it was even more so. Because you know when you see Amy Winehouse with just uh, a, a, just her and a guy playing guitar, mm-hmm. and it's, she's just singing, and she has that sultry, jazzy voice? Lita has been doing that exact same style since the late 80s. Wow. Amazing. And so she, like she used to play with this guy who did the exact same thing, and they'd play like Moon Dance by, by um, Van Morrison or Whoa. a Beatles song, and, and she would just do that, that total jazzy, sultry voice it's like if Amy Winehouse I think she totally copied Lita that's that's my point so if Lita had just not gone to rehab she could have been huge exactly like grammy winning yeah. you know so let's start at the beginning of amy winehouse's house's life so this has so i took notes as i usually do while i watch a documentary uh, and i also looked on the internet for information so this information might be wrong so take it or leave it but anyway she was born in 1983 and she was born in north london to jewish parents of russian and polish descent Her dad was a taxi driver, and her mother was a pharmacist, which I found to be sort of interesting, given her life, right? Yep. (laughs) She had an older brother who was four years older. I believe his name was Alex or something. Her mother's brothers were jazz musicians which I thought was interesting. And her dad's mother was a jazz singer. And her dad, who was in the documentary, would sing Frank Sinatra songs to her. So there was a lot of jazz and retro stuff happening in her household while she was growing up. Because if you, they didn't portray that in the documentary. No, it started right in on assuming that it came out of nowhere. <laughs> it seems to have come out of nowhere in yeah. it, right? It's like there's this 14-year-old girl singing like a jazz singer. It's like, yeah, it's like what? Like, yeah.
2: Well, and, and, and even to the point that, you are led to understand that her dad played almost no role in
0: her life. Right. Right. Which
2: is mostly true, but at the same time, it seems like there was a musical influence
0: there. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that narrative in a bit. Okay, so then in 1993, we're talking about the grunge age. She's nine years old, and her parents separate. Uh, In the documentary, they they highlight this moment when her parents separated.
1: I love when the dad is just like, I think she got over it pretty quickly. And you're just like, oh, Uh, my God.
0: Yeah. It was really sad, actually. It's a common misunderstanding, because what parents are looking for in their children is tears or some kind of like overt emotionality regarding the difficulty of of their separation but uh children don't do that and adults don't usually do it either but yeah she was she was separate there was sort of a theme and tell me if you think this seemed to be true that the documentary at least was trying to tell us that the parents were not all that nurturing of amy did you find that to be true Oh, Mm -hmm.
2: uh, I
0: definitely found it to be the, I don't know
2: if it was true in real life, but it's certainly the vibe I got from the documentary. And I certainly from the documentary got the vibe that the dad was very much to blame for a lot of her issues and lack of addressing the issues.
1: I think that like when the mom didn't stand up to her and the mom will let her get away with murder, that can be a kind of neglect. Right. So I think that's one of the ways in which they weren't that nurturing.
0: Right. It is a nurturing act to dedicate the energy to disciplining your child. So she says that when her parents separated, she rebelled. She said she rebelled at the age of nine. She, she knew she could get away with whatever she wanted, she said. And she also said she became quite depressed. And she said that music was her outlet at the time. Uh, she also learned how to tap dance. I read this on the internet, which I thought was interesting. They didn't have that in the documentary. And she also started a rap group called Sweet and Sour, <laughs> like salt and pepper. <laughs> they didn't talk about that in the documentary. Although she did. There was the allusion to rap you later. You not talk in about
1: now. everything. Huh? I mean, you have to cut it down. It's a whole yeah. lifetime. But
0: it, yeah. I always find it interesting what they choose to yeah. include and what they choose not to. It's hard. Not, so,
1: yeah. I mean, I used to like write profiles of people. And it's it's hard because even there, you're kind of having an opinion about what's important and what's not.
2: Right. Actually, that that is one of my complaints about the documentary is that I could almost accuse it of being exploitative and because i say that because i am mostly just focused on her dysfunction like there were a few moments where it highlighted her talent and but i'd say the bulk of it was about the dysfunction and since her life was very dysfunctional that. well that might be the, but I, I think I just, the more you know.
1: that it's like that's the story that's the tension that her destruction was as big as her talent
2: but i didn't like for example we were just saying how where did her talent come from? like i didn't get a sense of like who was she as an artist as much as i did who was she as a dysfunctional person yeah. And and that might be fair because in the end she was dysfunctional and she sadly killed herself. Or, but I think you know, that
1: all the parts that they just let her sing further. and put the lyrics up on the board on the movie I think that was kind of a moment to be like look how freaking good she was without having to say that you know yeah
0: and she sang in a style that made it hard to understand what she was saying and so it was helpful to have her lyrics uh displayed which I thought was really a good idea also before the documentary begins I read that she attended theater school which I also thought was interesting you know it's like so she was groomed to be on stage Mm -hmm. by her family she Went to theater school. She wanted to be, you know, she's a tap dance, and she wanted to. She had a rib, you know, uh, a rap group. So um, by the time we see her start in the documentary in 1998 at the age of 14, you know, we already have someone who's set up for uh, at least some something having to do with music. You know what I mean? So we see her at the beginning of the documentary. She's 14, and around this time, I also read that she started playing her older brother's guitar. And then she bought, she bought her own guitar.
1: <laughs> that guy probably like bought it to pick up chicks. And then his little sister's just like, kills it. <laughs> it. Never mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was so shocked when I saw the, that early video footage of her, how innocent and clean and happy she looked. Did you guys notice that? Yeah, yeah, that, that, you're right, that, that's very happy. <laughs> yeah, and another sort of notable thing that I'm just realizing right now is people are singing happy birthday, kind of, you know, the way that people do, like happy birthday. And then she pipes in with her beautiful voice, and everyone stops singing because <laughs> she sounds so much better. And then she does a full on, like, You know, I'm on the stage kind of rendition with this trill at the end. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Um, Before even that point, though, there's a bit where they start off with her singing the song Moon River. Do you guys know this song? You don't know it, Paulette?
1: Moon River? Remind me. Moon River,
0: wider than a mile. I'm cra- I I want to actually talk about this song for a little bit. Can we talk about this song? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, let me just tell you the lyrics, okay? Tell me what it means. Moon river, wider than a mile. I'm crossing you in style someday. Uh, to drifters, da, 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 you heartbreaker. Wherever you're going, I'm going your way. to drifters off to see the world. There's such a lot of world to see. Uh, something, something. My Huckleberry friend, Moon River, and me. I'm I'm obviously leaving s- stuff out, but from those lyrics, can you tell what that song means? No. I,
2: I kind of always thought two things. One is Moon River. I pictured the literally the reflection of the moon on a river at night. But then the metaphor I got from it was actually like death. But That's maybe I'm kind of dark. what
1: I was saying is like I'll cross you one day. I yeah. mean, I don't know.
2: Yeah, but my Huckleberry friend?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, Huckleberry's a weird You'll word. You'll be
2: there till the end with me. Huh. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, maybe it's not just death, but maybe it's like the path of life and then including death. I don't know. Huh.
0: But I'm making up shit. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, anyway, my relationship with this song goes way back when I was in high school. I was in vocal jazz. Yeah. You know, with Jazz Hands. Jazz hands. That's my thing. Nice. And you had to sing a final, you know, because every class has to have a final test, right? So, what do you have to do in vocal jazz? Well, you have to sing a song.
1: In front of everyone? Yeah. Oh,
0: and so, God. I sang. So, they gave us these, these tapes that just had, it was basically like a karaoke tape with all these standards on it. And I just listened to all the different tracks and I was like, man, which one am I going to sing? And then this Moon River song came out. Right. And I'd never heard it before. And I was like, oh, I'll sing that one. So, I sang it for, for my vocal jazz final. I don't know how I did. Don't ask me. I probably got an A. How'd I'm you awesome.
1: do? Probably got an A. No big deal. Because
0: <laughs> I'm awesome. Um, but I fell in love with the song at that point, And then I found out that it was popularized by the singer Andy Williams and Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's right. Oh. So Audrey Hepburn sings this sings that song in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Why are you
2: making signs with your hands? Uh, Does she play it on a ukulele?
0: She plays or it on a, a guitar very yeah. nice uh, Hepburn won an Oscar in 61 for her rendition of the song which beautiful. is, is beautiful and then the song also won a Grammy in 62 everyone has covered it according to the internet including R.E.M. Morrissey P.J. Harvey The Killers Willie Nelson Rod the Bod, Barb- <laughs> Rod, the Bod. <laughs> Rod Stewart man Rod the Bod
1: <laughs> did you write Rod the Bod or did you read that off no, no 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 Rod
0: that was his nickname that was his nickname Rod the Bod one of his nicknames. <laughs> and Barbara. Barbara, uh, you know, Barbara. so and, and all sorts of other people. Uh, my parents actually found out that I liked this song, and they took me to see Andy Williams play at the Paramount. We Whoa. sat in the front oh. row.
1: Oh, I've Uh-oh. never sat in the front row. Zach of Morris anything? made me think that I would be in the front row always from Saved by the Bell. Tell me you guys know what I'm talking about. Of course. No. Zach Morris always had front row seats. Yes. So I'm like, oh, you just have front row seats <laughs> all the time, and then you're an adult, and just like, oh, those are $10,000. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not going to have those. See if I'm back here here beyonce all uh-huh. of my binoculars no big deal
0: <laughs> you're wearing your beyonce shirt i, I am yeah. actually
1: i got this was the closest i was like i told my boyfriend i'm like one time i want to be up close at an awesome concert so this was my awesome you up, were you up i was there were you we were both there
2: oh, yeah. i have a picture where she's like we're kirkus uh, yeah you're right up. oh close. you're yeah. way
1: closer than me then we were like down in the front and security was so bad that when the lights went out everyone just rushed forward yeah so we were like a hundred feet away it yeah. was still amazing
2: I was, I was around the same place, and we did the same. I mean, I didn't have that ticket. I had a ticket, and then we rushed in. Whoa.
0: <laughs> but, That's amazing. Um, yeah, I saw your pictures on Facebook. Yeah. You, it seemed like you were right there. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, l- I listened to my Be- best of Beyonce on the walk down here. Wow. I didn't realize I, I had the shirt on too. I have, um, That's
2: a much. I have a similar thing with with another jazz standard, <laughs> and the blackface
0: is just taking it too far. <laughs> yeah, you got to stop. This is
1: still not okay. I thought it came back.
0: <laughs> it's back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the documentary, getting back to the documentary, the mother said that Amy was very defiant as a child,
1: but she was kind of a wuss. She didn't discipline her,
0: and the mom was a wuss. She says she she literally says this in the documentary. I wasn't strong enough to say no to her
1: told her about her bulimia and she's just like i didn't think it meant, it really meant anything
0: right what right so she so amy goes to her mother at the age of 15 or something and says oh i found a new way to diet i i vomit everything out and the mom didn't do anything amy goes to her dad says it to i mean talk about a cry for help yeah
2: and her mom real. was her mom was certified right she was a certified parent, right? Uh, yeah. She had gone through the training. Yeah, She should have known. I guess my sarcastic point is, you know, how do people know... What to do with teenagers.
1: Okay, but, but there's a point where you're just like, hey, mom, I've been taking the knives out and slicing them against my skin to see if I bleed. Okay, I mean, there's some things you don't have to freaking learn in parenting school. Yeah. If your kid's puking up every meal to diet, right. that's crazy. Yeah. It's not like it's in some third world country. But like, what year, like, what, what year are we England. talking?
0: We're talking internet time of 1998, 1999. Yeah, 1998. That's not no. internet time for a lot of people, though.
1: In England,
2: no, no. Internet time starts like in two thousand, and and and. Boo, for me, no. it started in. She should have known by but. then.
1: All no. through the eighties, people had bulimia. It was a but, big no. issue. Yeah, I
2: never knew about it about bulimia till I was. In high school, and there was a bulimic, and she was anorexic, and then even then, I was like, "Oh," and no one knew what to do or how to relate to her. It doesn't seem like anyone ever yeah. said anything. No,
0: I agree. I agree it's 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 hard to look back in time and judge someone because it's hard to remember oh, what it was like. Oh, no, yeah. it's yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it 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 was a lot less culturally known that you're supposed to respond to that. Having said that, the way that she said she responded with basically indifference. You know what I mean? It's not like she said, well, I asked a friend about it, and, yeah. you know, or, well, I went to Amy, and I said, hey, uh, I don't know if this is a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, she literally, the story is, she, she tells her parents, and her parents do nothing. Yeah. Okay. Now, now granted, Grant, one caveat is, that's one
2: quote they, they put in the documentary. Yeah. It's a lifetime. lifetime. Maybe
1: I wouldn't be so annoyed if it wasn't like... Then there were 10 other similar situations in which they were equally as negligent. You know, it's like... The whole mom is just... Makes me crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, the dad too. Dad, dad you could even argue is... More immoral by literally not even being
1: there. He looks so bad in that movie.
0: <laughs> and okay. Yeah. So clearly she was crying out for help. She won she Amy even said, there's you know interviews with her in the documentary, saying that she needed discipline back then. And her dad was never there. And this is a this I can't even okay, I'm just gonna kinda cut to the chase. I can't tell you how quintessential, how typical, how cliche Amy's life was.
1: Really? Even with how her everyone around her was?
0: Well, she was mega famous, which was very, you know, rare. But to me, after I kind of digested the entire story and documentary, if I just get rid of all of the fame... It's so mundane, the story. This stuff happens every day, and it always looks the same. Or not always, but yeah. this is such... I mean, a p- parents separate. They break up. Very common. Parents, dad disappears. Dad doesn't p- pay enough attention. Girl, daughter feels neglected. Once dad's attention uh, starts to rebel, feels depressed. Mom is also stressed out, can't pay attention to her children. Daughter develops eating disorder. And acts out sexually. Acts out sexually. Trance. Starts to, uh you know, as a cry out for help, gets a tattoo early in life. I, I have to say, I had the same feeling
2: w- when I was driving away from the movie. I thought to myself, if this were a fiction, like, the, let's say this was a fictional movie, and it wasn't a documentary, if it was just like, I, I swear I would have felt halfway through it, like... Jesus, you're just like writing the book into a movie. That's it. like you know, like yeah. they're going page by page from the psychiatric manual or something, right? Because it seemed too contrived, right? Even down to the song choices and the lyrics. Okay. And she's like, I- I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, I'm well aware of my contradictions, but I still have them, and I can't do anything about them. Yeah. she
0: even mentions <laughs> she even mentions Freud. Yeah, yeah. So then let's skip to 1999, a year later. She's She's 15, and again, this is, this is where she starts talking about bulimia. And I was just wondering what you guys think. Why would you think the parents would not take this seriously? Aside from them just being ignorant. But in general, why would the parents not pay attention to their daughter?
1: I think it's denial. Why, have, would
0: they, why would they be in denial?
1: Because um, no one wants to think that they're not doing a good job as a parent or their child is coming up a little crooked
0: if they believed that and had to accept that what would that mean and why would they want to avoid that
1: that would mean that they were bad parents and they kind of failed in this huge undertaking
0: and they would have to face that that possibility yeah so it's easier to deny and say it's not happening it's not happening this is
1: why i'm scared to have kids so scary
0: well i i don't know if if it if it implies that they
2: would have bought a ticket to egypt but what i do know Mm. is that they um they were very much in the it, from what you get from the documentary so i don't know if this was all real or not especially the dad like i mean there was that obvious scene where they're like Hey, we tried to, literally, we tried to get her to go to rehab and the dad said no. And he has, she has it in her lyrics. The dad admits it. He's like, I don't think she needed rehab, et I, I mean, Jesus, like, you know, and, and like they said, maybe it wouldn't have saved her, but he was clearly in denial right? and he
0: was clearly not helping her. Right. So here's what they didn't go into that I wish they would. That is more in my world, which is what are the parents' childhoods like? Mm. What was their upbringing like? Yeah. Uh, because uh, I wouldn't be surprised if their own families had addiction and denial and neglect.
2: They hinted at the mom, remember? They said the father's mom was more of a mom to Amy's mom right? than oh, Amy's yeah. mom. I know Look that's that. confusing, but because yeah. she said, my mom was never there for yeah. me. Blah, blah. And
1: the grandma was there. Yeah. yeah. So I have a question like, if a family has a history of drug abuse and alcohol abuse, how should you be treated? How should you be talking to preteens about that? You know, like, I feel like you don't find that out until you're in your 20s. And then it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I have a history of alcoholism. And then you're like, hmm, hmm, am I okay? Like, I, you know.
0: I know people who would get clean themselves. And then would tell their kids, um, you know, from a fairly early age, maybe 14, 15, that by the way, in our family, genetically, is the predisposition toward addiction. And if you start drinking or using cigarettes or something else, you have a much higher likelihood of getting hooked than other people do. And so you, should be, know. you should be really careful about that.
2: Yeah. And, and I wonder, do you know any stats? Because I remember even maybe a tougher bluff we did where uh, it was something like, if uh, children of parents that admit to drug use are, in fact, more likely to try the drugs because maybe subconsciously they end up thinking, well, he survived or she survived or something like that.
0: Right. I forget. I mean, and of course, those kinds of studies are uh, difficult to determine exactly what they mean. And they're funded by the DEA. <laughs> yeah. But, but I'm sure that research has found that if you're I – mean, well, the main thing is is – to protect children from addiction is secure attachments and good upbringing that is stable and loving if cuz the whole the whole other time I was thinking throughout the documentary was I was thinking who is going to love Amy for who she is? And will she stop long enough to allow herself to be loved by somebody?
1: I think it was probably the guy that left her and then got back with her when she was really famous. Blake. That guy seemed legit. Blake. <laughs> I was like, ah! Oh!
2: Yeah. One thing that that occurred to me during that sequence when they were first talking about how she got into drugs is growing up, all I heard was that drugs are terrible for you, right? But I, I, f- I think there's a bug in how it's presented uh, because the the impression that i I remember getting and I, I think is presented is you so much as taste one drug and you're basically dead.
0: Yeah. well was, that screw you up. That was the eighties and 90s yeah uh, and I don't know maybe maybe it's a lot
2: better now, but it's, um, it's
0: probably not
2: but so so that the, here's what I think happens with some people I, I've seen it around my circles in in the last twenty years. It's um, hey. What if, but these people do it seemingly every weekend, and they seem fine. So maybe this is all BS. And then, it, then they actually rebel against the the standard. It's like you know what? This is all bullshit. Drugs are more than okay. Blah 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 blah. Right. And then they don't realize when they get hooked, and then they actually get addicted and blah blah blah.
0: Right. Well, it's it, it's the same with food. Our relationship with food and exercise. Yeah. It's it's a very complex thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, simply put, don't eat as many calories and exercise a lot of calories off. It's a simple idea, right? Yeah. How come so many intelligent Americans struggle with that all right. the time?
1: It's it, so ridiculous, though. Like, just today I read something that's like, you don't have to drink eight glasses of water a day. I'm like, right. <laughs> it, it's, it's a
0: billion different notions and behaviors. The same with substance use. If you're right. going to use substances, the the navigation of how to use it with the least amount of consequences is... A billion different decisions and notions. And so you as parents can help that with with children, Uh, you know. The way I presented it, just that one idea when I said as a parent, it's like, well, you say if you start using, you might you have a greater likelihood of becoming hit, hooked on it. Right. That's not I didn't say if you use once, you will, you're become, you and will like, become yeah.
1: This is weed and this is heroin and meth. They're different things. <laughs> yeah. right. You know, right. like I, I think used, that's uh, part of the problems. They're like everything's lumped together. And well, I think yeah. especially now it's so much more accepted. Like you look at a Rihanna video, it's like, oh Rihanna's like smoking a bong in her video, and you're just like Okay, like it's becoming so much more normalized and you're right. like and, and but and still not meth
0: or heroin everyone well, like Well, but but al- and alcohol is even more accepted. Yeah. Totally. A- yeah. And and all of those things can be just as destructive in yeah. people's lives. And and it's and again, it's not that you drink, it's when do you drink? How do you drink? Do you drink to escape All of your problems all of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you allow yourself, you know, to feel feelings without turning to substances to, to modify it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's
1: totally fine to like smoke and drink if you want to every now and then. But I think that especially with smoking, it can become like, oh, if you were doing, if you're drinking alcohol at the same rate, you'd be like, oh, there's a problem. Right. You
0: know? Right. And if you're high all the time, which plenty of people are, uh, then something like 5% of Americans, smoke every day
2: nearly all of the people that live in the himalayas are high all the time
0: god what a fantastic joke (laughs) (laughs) getting back to the uh, timeline year 2000 the year 2000 oh you get it the one joke we all get age 17 she starts getting recognition as a serious singer for example she was the featured vocalist for the national youth jazz jazz orchestra in in britain
2: see i would have liked to know that that's what i'm talking about
0: yeah uh skipping ahead 2001 she's 18 she meets nick who is in the movie quite a bit as a positive force in her life oh
1: that's true i like him
0: yeah he's the talent scout and a good friend. Uh, I, we see a video of her playing a light blue strat. Did you notice that, or a strat knockoff of some kind? Did you notice that she played a lot of strats? I didn't actually pay attention to that. No. Oh my God. How can you not pay attention? I had a light blue Strat knockoff. Oh. And when I saw her playing Strats, I was so happy because Strats are my favorite guitar, but they're also the nerdiest guitar. Like no one ever plays Strats. <laughs> like all the cool kids.
1: The only musicians who don't get laid play Strats. Oh, yeah. Only like,
0: real Nashville guitarists play Strats. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and and Eric Clapton and Stevie yeah. Ray Vaughan and Just the Jimmy, good ones. Jimmy Hendrix. All those guys play Strats, but forever. Whatever reason if you're caught with a strat past 1988 you're this big nerd especially in seattle you got to play jazz master you got to play the jaguar you got to you got to play the les paul you got to play the sg you cannot have a fender stratocaster but i have a fender strat i know you do and i i do too we know you do i have i have i've owned i've owned several strats and several strat knockoffs and when i saw her playing that strat i was i was so happy to see it do you have the advanced dnd edition Ha! Uh, I played D and D. I still play D and D. In fact, one of my favorite podcasts is about D and D called "The Adventure Zone." <laughs> if you're out there listening, uh, okay, he's
1: taken, ladies. He's taken.
0: <laughs>
2: well, I was I was paying more attention to her wardrobe choices. Yeah. so that's why I missed the strat
0: choices. Interesting. Uh I also liked that they showed her playing gigs to no one. Since Berto, you and I are musicians, <laughs> we know that very well playing gigs to no one in clubs. That's right. What does that feel like? Um honest- I, I came to a sh- okay. So I've had gigs to no one. Berto said gigs to no one, but there was this one show a few months ago where Berto's band played where Okay, usually when you say gigs to no one there's like usually like a five. bartender or like a f- <laughs> like the other band might be in the back corner there's usually at least a smattering of people it's it's every literally to no one well this one show I, and I went to Birdo's there was literally no one except for me in the entire room in the entire room the bar was actually in a different room and so it was Berto's Birdo's band and me no, for uh, the first eight out of ten songs just that's me.
2: That's because you misunderstood what was yeah, happening. It was a love proposal from us to you. We didn't invite anyone else. There was just an
1: onion article that said, author gives her all, whether reading to a group of three or a crowd of nine. And I was like, Oh God, it's so true. I still love those events though. I don't
0: know. No, it was a fun night.
1: That's how art starts. It's so crazy. I, it starts so small, even when you make it so big. I,
2: I gotta be honest, I'm a pretty selfish um person so when i'm playing i and i suppose this is how it should be i actually just enjoy playing so even when we jam unless i have a cold or something I really just enjoy it. Oh, yeah. And I always just pretend like I'm playing to a stadium. It just
0: doesn't, you know. (laughs) Well, I'm the same way, except I don't pretend I'm playing to a stadium. (laughs) I like to play in that way so much that I actually don't like to play gigs because playing gigs means I have to haul everything around. That's true. And I can get just the same satisfaction playing in our practice space by ourselves and have that inner peace, you know. So I actually hate gigs, as you know, Berto. But then you don't make the big bucks. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So interesting observations that I had uh, or things that I noted from from the documentary right away is that she had a very classic voice. She kind of had a Billie Holiday-ish kind of situation.
2: Even, I mean, she got the highest compliment from Mr. Tony Bennett, right? Yeah. Right. He was like oh, she's yeah. like up says. there with these other Ella and
1: all these guys. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I really loved her.
0: Personally, I would not put her even close to Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, very few people can get up that high in my mind. I don't know if he,
1: did he say
2: Ella? I don't know who he said. He said some people. Yeah. He named names.
0: Uh, uh also she wrote her own music which was amazing. Amazing. And great lyrics actually. Yeah.
2: But I, I by the way uh, so, remember how at the beginning we said what we thought about her before? Uh, having heard the movie, now I'm actually really interested in getting some of her early stuff, especially. because. And this is so tragic. And they kind of called it out in the movie. The song uh, "Rehab" does not at all showcase her talent. Yeah, it's a great catchy song. Uh, I never liked it that much, partially because I felt guilty of the fact that that might actually be a real story.
1: Yeah, you're like, I love this song. Uh, I love no, it. Should you go
2: to it like you're saying? But but what I will say is, uh, some of those songs she was playing, I was super impressed with the lyrics the the melodies were so interesting and complex and yeah. I'm gonna absolutely like uh, use the iTunes a music thingy to get her music
1: alright I think My Tears Dry on Their Own and Love is a Losing Game are like two great songs and Tears Dry on Their Own is a little bit more up and Love is a Losing Game is like super slow okay. And nice and amazing. But I mean, she doesn't have that much music, so it's not that hard to listen to everything she had, because that third album was like, just kept getting pushed back farther and farther.
0: Yeah. Um, Another thing that was pointed out that I want to remind people of is that her friend Nick said that she had a way of making people feel very important and then very unimportant. And this is something I see a lot in therapy, and it's something that I see a lot personally. Is this this way, uh, you know, I don't know if you've had f- a friend like this. It's,
1: I just realized I'm totally writing a character that does exactly that. So I want to I want to hear how he think she does that so I can steal that.
0: Yeah, it's essentially a minor borderline is what we might call it. But essentially, it's a it's a way of seeing other people in a way of coping with closeness. It's also a, I don't want to get too technical, projective identification that that they're recreating. Essentially, what happened was she was growing up and she's a little girl and she really wants to be important and loved and paid attention to and cared about and held and safe. And she didn't have that.
1: Too close to home.
0: Right. She felt unimportant. She felt uncared for. She felt uh, adrift, you know, uh, and and what that creates is this in this inner conflict between wanting other people to be close to her because she's even more desperate than the average person for someone to be close to her. But she also is extremely afraid of getting close to someone because that opens her up to vulnerability and being rejected by someone that she depends on. So when you're interacting with her, at first she'll pull you in because she wants someone to, she's desperate for closeness. She really wants you to get close because she's so needy of closeness. But at the same time, she's really afraid of it. And she'll push you away and and make you feel off kilter.
1: Why do people get afraid of it, though? They want it so much.
0: Because to open yourself up to dependency opens yourself Mm -hmm. up to rejection. And if if you are the one to reject... Then you will not get rejected. If you, it's you defining the landscape. I that person didn't reject me. I rejected them first. And people with these with this sort of upbringing will do this literally to everyone around them. And Nick was talking about that.
2: And she talks. She almost says that in her songs. At least one of them that that she was playing, uh, where the lyrics were something along the lines of like, "I had to take the step." to end it or to whatever I right? am totally like butchering it but but um it was about her and Blake or whatever his name is um and it's that kind of thing like well yeah I had to make sure that I was the one to- to like stop this or whatever.
1: So is that always just neglect or can it be from other things too?
0: Yeah. It's basically betrayal. It's basically rejection. It's, it's basically not being cared about and that there's many roads to that result.
1: Okay. I think it fits with what I have going. I'm excited about that.
0: You, You could be abused. You could be neglected you could you could have someone die. You could I mean anything that compromises that needed attention that children need from both of their parents.
1: I think that works with the plot that I have going. I'm excited about that. Awesome. It's so hard to write fiction. Ugh.
2: So I can I can so identify with that from the so like uh, you know my mom exited my life day to day when I was about three. Yeah. And I she, she stayed in my life The way Paulette's I, leaving you right now. That's right. The way she's uh, You are re-abusing me. Uh what's a, uh, what's the thing uh that you call out when someone is re-traumatizing you? Uh, trigger warning. Trigger
0: warning. Trigger warning. Um Paulette got up to get a glass of water just as Bruno started talking cuz she was <laughs> about like about abandonment I was still issues.
2: Listening. I need water. <laughs> no, but basically so, you know, she she leaves my uh my dad and I and so I I developed a, that kind of push pull with women, you know, the idea that I desperately want that attention, but I will also end it at the first sign of trouble or, or do something to end it because, or do nothing to end it, but be, by doing nothing ending it. Um, and I had that repeatedly with. You know, looking back with several early relationships, where it was like, "Oh, oh, 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 this one's about to, this one's about to hurt me." No, 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 I'm done. Mm. Or, oh, you meant Or or, this one's going really well. I'm gonna not call her at all or take her calls again. Yeah, like really ridiculous behaviors of either complete preemptive strike or or like avoid or feeling at, at. unease when something's actually going well and
0: yeah. you know right I feel that's loved. that's that feeling it's like wait things are going well uh wh- why do i feel uneasy well that's because right. y- that person now can hurt you if they call you up and break up with you You've, you have another example of being rejected.
1: I feel like adulthood is always just this extreme reaction to childhood. It's just like, whatever happens in your childhood, you're just like, it's crazy. Yep. Everyone, yeah. it's so hard. And you're like, oh, I know I'm like this because of this. And yet, and you're like, well, I'm so like that. So I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> it's
2: almost like you should have a, a little reset button by the time you hit 18. <laughs> oh
1: my God. Yeah, I know. And I try to keep thinking that I can change, but I'm like, I'm 33. And at some point... Evolution's just like, well, you're old enough, you probably have kids, you don't have to learn anymore or change anymore. You're just like set in your ways. But I keep, I don't know, it's like trying to change or just accept whoever the hell you are. Yeah, evolution, like you're saying, evolution's like, wait, you're still trying? Yeah. You can die now
2: if you want. Yeah, go ahead. We're we're kind of done with your purpose. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So some other things about Amy is that you might turn to sex in order to modify and modulate this as well.
1: Wait, I'm sorry, what? Sex for modifying and modulating? Well,
0: because <laughs> because <laughs> when you when you modulate a man's nether regions
2: <laughs> from um, D to D flat or
0: yeah, um, when, when you, when you uh, are desperate for closeness and security, a very quick road to getting pseudo closeness and pseudo security is through
1: sex. We know this. Yeah. If you Berto really knows this. If you become what? <laughs> if you become
0: very sexual and very um, seductive, men in your hetero men will respond to that, and you will feel sought after, and you will feel like people love you, and you will feel like you have closeness. But at the same time, you're setting yourself up for feeling like you're just a, a piece of meat. And your your only worth is your sexuality and your body, which ultimately is rejecting even if the man actually does have feelings for you. Because you'll always wonder, is it just because of the sex that he loves me or is it something else?
1: Let's do an offshoot podcast for middle school girls and we'll just tell them how life works. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Having said that, in two weeks, I'm going up into the mountains for a camp and I'm going to talk about sex ed oh, yeah. to children. You've done that before. And I've done it before and I'm going to do it again. You can't stop me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it sounds you would, terrible, but it's a good thing. You would have
0: gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling kids. <laughs> yeah. So um, so there's that. The other thing is is a way of, of getting friends, a way of getting closeness and getting camaraderie is through sneaking off behind the bushes and smoking weed. If you are desperate for closeness and for security and love and attention and a group of people that you can depend on, then especially with marijuana, because it's sort of low-grade illegal and you have to do it away from a crowd... That if you get with the weed smokers, you instantly have a little group of loyal friends that you need. You depend on each other because of the law and because of the teachers and your parents.
1: Now you're getting way too close to home. (laughs)
0: And and so it's a, and cigarettes can be this way too. It's like, it's a, it's a quick way. It's, it's a quick way to get a, you know, group of friends. Is that what happened to you?
1: Yeah. You know, I was thinking about, so I went to college two months after my dad died in an accident, 17. And I mean, it was just bad, you know, it was just so bad. And I went to one of these schools that like some years is ranked as the number one party school in the nation. So I'm. What school? University of Florida.
0: Oh, Florida. Oh,
1: I seriously, like I was in shock, even until like, a, I think a month after I arrived, it hit me and it was like the worst year of my life. So I think after that, you know, you kind of are just like, you feel like such an outsider that you want to feel like an insider again. And I'd had this funny experience when I was 17, where I was already had been drinking and smoked weed for the first time and puked everywhere. So I hadn't tried it again until years later. And that was definitely, you know, you're like you just feel like your little group is like the bad kids and you just like the bad kids because everyone's like funny and crazy and smart and bad and those are my kind of people.
0: (laughs) Right. It's not like they aren't good friends, but it can be uh, and actually it could be even a good thing. You know, it's like, oh, we have this thing together. I I can depend on you people to smoke weed with me behind the bushes. But it can also be a bad thing because it locks you into particular people. It's also dependent on substances in order to get closeness. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, closeness for closeness sake it's it's all around substances so substances become your way of loving and get love and getting love from other people and right from the beginning you can see her very much addicted to weed you know she 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 on the home video she you know she talks about smoking weed all the time and right so another another thing about weed is that it will modulate your feelings of depression and rejection.
1: Will you define modulate for me? I think I know what change. it means. It'll okay.
0: change. It'll it'll mitigate. It will mitigate. Probably so. A mitigate
1: means to change for the better.
0: A mitigate means to lessen uh, through some agent, and so uh, through the agent of marijuana, you become less. Uh, Distressed, you become less hurt, you Mm -hmm. become less connected to the world, Uh, you become more euphoric, you become you know, all those things, you become more numb. And so right away, she's using marijuana from an early age. Probably, now, what people say is like, oh, she's just a druggy, she likes to get high. But, you know, she had several moments where throughout the documentary where she, clearly she knew it was a bad idea for her to use, right?
2: Well, and, and she was also on quote-unquote legal drugs. And She mentioned she was on uh, erzipan or something. And I, I
1: want to say that I think labeling on any level is uh, destructive or just not the way to connect with people. And what I love about people's stories, especially when people tell their own stories, is I always say, like, no label survives story. If you hear someone's story, you're just like, oh you know, cause everyone really is a human being and we're all born in these totally different circumstances. Yeah. So you never know what someone else is going through. There's a lot of this going on right now with the Ashley Madison leak and people are just like, you don't know what my situation was. You know, yeah. my husband stopped having sex with me 20 years ago or something like that. So I don't know. I think that totally. that's what documentaries can do yeah. for a person.
0: Yeah. The Ashley Madison thing. I, I, I was thinking the same thing. It's like one, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know where they were, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure you can be on Ashley Madison and not be cheating on someone. They they release stats and they they uh, higher percentage were single people. Yeah, so 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 there's that, and also like. Yeah, like you're saying, maybe maybe they just got they just found out they were being cheated on, and on an impulse they went on the site because they're like, I'm going to get back at my spouse or something, I mean,
2: or, just... or, or they decided to cheat. But so what? They're that, like you're saying, that's one thing in their life. That's one aspect of a very rich, complete life. I mean, it, I suppose at some point you have to draw a line when you say, hey, this person murdered three people on
0: purpose. Okay, well, I guess we can call him a murderer. Yeah, if, there, if there's <laughs> an, <laughs> you know? if there's an Ashley Madison for that, then yeah. let's shame. Yeah. Those people. But but since our country is so backward when it comes to sex and moralizing, this is just like right up our alley.
2: <laughs> and, and I'd say like, um, maybe I'm wrong, but if she had never, if she had always just done the pot the pot. she might have been okay totally
1: might have been i mean well drinking is what killed her right drinking and bulimia
2: well yeah. drinking bulimia and
1: heavy
2: heavy excess of crack cocaine uh what's Heroine. it called heroin cocaine probably other stuff probably meth. like who knows right yeah, yeah. so did you was-
1: guys read the rolling stone article During the, it sounded like the height of her drug use. It was crazy. This Rolling Stone reporter was in her house all night long and it just kept saying how she just kept disappearing and coming back. And it was really, really crazy. It was like she wasn't even trying to hide it almost or it was just too out of control. Or she was everywhere. Everyone knew.
0: Or she was crying out for help. Yeah. Well, and we'll get to that in a second too because there's some. There's some interesting things that were revealed in the documentary along those lines, but just kind of getting back to my early impressions, her singing style was very. I, I the the word that I thought of was was she attacked the songs like she did not hold back. You know, she even when she was just kind of messing around, she just belted out these songs. You know, just this big voice would just come boom. You know, right out of her.
2: Yeah, and, and it was. Uh, very unexpected what she did in those attacks because remember when she's singing the duet with Tony Bennett and it's early in the in the scene when she's feeling I- insecure about what she's doing but even right off the bat you know they show Tony Bennett doing his oh da 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 very nice and all of a sudden it's her turn and I'm not sure what I'm expecting but what she does is probably the last thing I expect her to do both in the melody she sings the way she sings it the way
0: she pronounces the words yeah. it's so interesting and that was her bad version right Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that scene was particularly painful because she was really intoxicated when she was singing that duet with him, right?
2: No, 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 not that one. I I don't think she was very intoxicated. She was just coming off from probably a bender and blah, blah. But she was, she was, she seemed sober. It's just that she was very insecure and it took her a lot of, Takes to get it right. But Tony, everything he was saying was very encouraging, and it's obvious that she finally got an amazing take.
0: So, just kind of racing through her history 2002, age 19, she gets signed with a management company, so she's very young, and she was paid 250 pounds a week, which is about $300 a week or something. And she no, it's, was.
2: It's, it's like. 400 Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's a a lot of money for a 19-year-old, right? And she was a regular singer at a jazz club. And apparently the the music industry, uh, people in the music industry were fighting over her at the time. Island, EMI, and Virgin, and other people. Which is kind of weird. It's like fighting over this jazzy singer, you know? But apparently they were looking for someone in response to the plastic pop stars of 2003, you know? Who were you listening to in 2003?
1: Oh, God. Okay. So that was, I was a junior... In college, a lot of Tom Petty, Flaming Lips, Radiohead.
0: Oh, all those really plastic, fake people.
1: I was really plastic, <laughs> I'm very, joking. I'm joking. I have, like those great, are like... I have great music snob friends, so I learn a lot. My boyfriend. But who
0: were who the big plasticky people in that of that time?
1: Oh, God. Well, I worked in a skating rink in like 1997, 1998. So I can tell you every single freaking pop shit from then, which was like... So Spice Girls were going on, Britney Spears, Christina Britney. Aguilera. Terrible. I don't know who was Poppy later, like 2003. I don't know. I tried to ignore that stuff at that time.
0: Uh, I loved it when she was talking about how she was super angry at her producers for putting fake strings on her first album, Frank, because I just love it that from right from the beginning, she's just like, do not put fake shit on my my songs, you know, because that's such an easy thing to do. It's like, oh, we need some strings here. Well, I have a whole bank of fake strings that sound really good that no one will be able to tell. Let me put some fake strings on here. And she was really angry at them and like yelled at them. Right. And and she had no problem just yelling at her label saying like you fucked me on that song. And when people interviewed her about that album, she was like I'm really only about 80% behind that album because of what they did to that song. <laughs> I mean, she was she was vocal about how her label even though it was her first album and she's 19, where most people would be totally kissing the ass of their label, she was like already rebelling.
2: And this is actually what went through my mind through that scene, the scene where she's being interviewed and the one gal is psychoanalyzing uh, Dido or uh, some other female singer of the time. and, And Amy's like... Like, <laughs> clearly, like, cleaning her lips and her teeth and kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously bothered by this person. But, but so I got two ideas in my head. One of them was like, well, that's kind of the, ch- the um, this is kind of the, the push-pull with some of these people. That it is that uncompromising weirdness that probably gave her some of her great edge. But it is also kind of a symptom of some of her personality issues. Do you know what I mean? Like the inability to stay focused, the inability to relate at a more quote unquote normal level. Yeah. I mean, all, all kind of artists
1: things. talk about that a lot. It's a big theme in art where is the crazy related to the creativity? Yeah. And Ellen Forney has a really great graphic memoir called Marbles that I think I've talked about on here before um, that addresses that. And it's, there are definitely patterns, you know, where you're just like, yeah, definitely, you know, it's something that artists know about.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that if she wasn't an artist, she would have had that disposition as well or that personality. Totally. And, and Be- probably would have had a hard time working places. <laughs> right, because she, like I said, was just so cliche as a client of a what we call a polysubstance addict, someone who isn't like, a, like just an alcoholic or just a heroin addict. You could tell that she would put anything in her Anything that was around. She wanted to put every substance in her possible. And she she just she wanted to be not sober. Like there was that the, the the one line in the documentary that just killed me was she just wins a Grammy. Yeah. And you know, you can see her face and she's so humble, you know, she's just like, Oh my God, I won and she's hugging her. It's like the pinnacle, you know, and she seems sober and you're just like, you're so happy for her, you know, and you're just thinking, Oh my God, you know, and in the, and while I'm watching it, I'm like, Oh, she wasn't fucked up all the time. She was just fucked up right. some of the time. Right. And so it's like, it's nice to see her like sober and clear eyed and, and then her best friend says, yeah, so my, so I'm crying in the front row cause she won the Grammy and I'm so happy for her. And then she grabs me and brings me backstage and says, I can't remember the exact this line. This is but so th-
1: boring without drugs. Yeah, this, this is so
0: boring without drugs. She
1: says this is
2: all so boring. It's this like, she she. it wasn't just even that moment. It's like, like the implication Everything. was that like, the, the pinnacle of her success, I mean, granted, she kind of, but you know, you're a musician. If you win a Grammy presented by Tony Bennett, you're idol, right? Yeah. Like, that's a kind of a pinnacle of your success at some point, right? Yeah. And and that's nothing to her. Right.
0: And the, and this is the tragedy of people like this that I found is that they're so obsessed on being high and and the process of getting high on anything that they can't enjoy anything else. Even a success like that, where you have won a Grammy for the best record of the year, and you are the, the best musician of the world in that moment. <laughs> and all you can think about is the fact that all of this is so boring without substances. But
1: on the flip side, they could already be the kind of person that can't enjoy anything. And that's why they started using drugs. Right. You know?
0: Totally. And I, th- I think that's true. Um, and the more you use, the harder it is to enjoy life without using You know what I mean? People who will quit substances will say that for at least a year, everything is so boring until they learn how to enjoy life again. But you'll talk to people that are 30 years sober and say, yeah, life was a lot more exciting when I used substances. And the past 30 years has been somewhat boring, but I would be dead if I kept that exciting life up the way that Amy
2: Winehouse did. And that's where the sad really hits, which is, oh, I see. Like you're saying, it's just one of those stories. So common, and yeah. yet it's only in this big flashlight, light limelight.
0: This story happens all the time. And one of the reasons why this one just seems particularly like interesting, not only is because she's famous, but she couldn't escape the cameras. If the other addicts in Seattle had cameras around them all the time like she did, we would see the same thing. But none of us see it because addicts are very good at hiding their life from other people. They become very good, very good at putting on a face that everything is okay.
2: Oh, and speaking of that, like she, there's that segment of the documentary where she's in that island or something. Yeah. And the implication seemed to be that she was drinking very heavily, yeah. but the other drugs had subsided, yeah. which is not necessarily great, but hey, maybe that's an inroads to something. No. But her dad shows up with cameras. Yeah. So it's like she might have had a chance to maybe do something, but her dad shows up with cameras.
0: I disagree. That was the story they were trying to tell. Uh The story was the story was she she gets to St. Lucia and she's totally happy and everything's great. She's she's got away from the big city and she's not taking drugs anymore. She's drinking more, but (laughs) the dad shows up and ruins everything with the cameras. And and they have this little scene where dad's yelling at her for not like pleasing a fan or something and and not being better on camera which was actually kind of interesting it's like jesus dad like stop exploiting your daughter but Jiminy, she says that too. Jiminy then. Cricket,
2: yeah. And it's a reality but,
0: show. But, yeah. But the, what I saw was, I mean, anyone who knows anything about addicts will say that she was not any better than she was when she was in London. Probably. Yeah. But the, but, only, yeah. the only thing that would have been better, and she was never better throughout the entire, what, the only thing that would have been better was, I have a massive problem. I need lots of help. I need to get rid of all my friends. I need to go to meetings every day. I need to stop touring. I need to stop hanging out with men because they trigger me I need to work on my bulimia I need to be in therapy every few days anything short of that is not recovery and so when they were trying to portray that it's like oh she was doing so well oh she was drinking more maybe that was a problem (laughs) yes that was a problem the only reason why she wasn't drugging was because she's in another country and she probably couldn't smuggle them in
2: well they did say I I guess to be fair to them they, they actually the quote from the dude was like but when you have access to a free bar then she just start drinking more than ever.
0: Yeah, money de- was the issue. But they did definitely uh, portray Saint Lucia as like she was getting better until her dad screwed it up. You know what I mean?
1: I, I could see that. I, she was I, happy.
2: I was bringing doctorate. it up because, she, you know, from my perspective. Uh, the dad could have had an opportunity to play a, a, a better role from the per, the way that per, they presented better role in our life but it seemed like at this point the only role he was interested in playing was like basically he's shooting his own reality series
0: totally I mean there were several examples of that where uh, like I read this on the internet where because you know around this time in the late 2000s was when iTunes was taking over and you know shared music was was taking over over and the music industry was tanking. Well, the only reason why they didn't tank then was because Amy Winehouse was selling so many records. I mean, she sold so many records around the world. She was huge everywhere. And without that income, uh, they would have they would have failed. And so, in order to sell records, they got to get her to tour. And and she hated touring. And instead of saying no, like a healthy person. She self-destructed by drinking and drugging so much that she couldn't even go on to stage. Hence, all that footage of her on stage completely messed up.
2: Now, do, would you would you say, like, from my perspective... Um, I didn't think she had the best advisors around her. Right. right. The
0: whole time, I kept thinking, where are her handlers? Yeah. Where are
2: her handlers? And,
0: and even the, the one,
2: the, her new manager, he kind of washes his hands. He's like, man, I, I mean, I was just setting up the gigs and stuff, but at some
0: point, the family's got to take care of this, right? Well, there's lots of things. I mean, one, she probably would have fired Ray if he tried to intervene, one. And, and, but, but also it's just like, does anyone care? But the other thing is, is she has so much power. She can, you know, she pushed people out of her life. You know, she pushed Nick out of her life. She pushed her best friends out of her life. And so, you know, a lot of it went down to her. So,
2: and then there was that one thing she actually signed, which was for her to go to rehab. Uh, they, you know, that, that thing that was like, we, you can no longer tour or record yeah. until you go and do this. The CEO like made her yeah. do that. Yeah. And it seems like, still didn't help her enough but
1: i thought it was so interesting when they were in rehab for a hot second and taking video and they were like making fun of it and she just goes like she's like i rather like it here like i thought that was like a little hint of like yes this is what i need this is what i need to be doing and like blake was there which is i liked how that guy was just like i would never send two addicts to rehab together ever let's talk about that but then they like finagled it
2: yeah. I was thinking about that when, when they said that. I was thinking that, you know, I wanted to ask you about it. Because the guy said, I consider it even unethical right. to, like, I would never take in a, a drug-addicted couple into the same right. rehab.
0: Yeah, they interviewed a, a drug counselor. Yeah. And I think maybe the intake person or somebody. And and he was saying, yeah, Amy really wanted to come in with her husband, Blake, because they were attached to the hip. And, and we were saying, no, that's not recommended in fact it's even potentially unethical the reason why you would say unethical is that it's substandard treatment that you it it'd be like saying yeah you you know if someone says they want to come in it's like i'll only come in if you let me shoot up heroin every day oh sure you know what i mean you'd be like no that that's bad treatment yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean um, and so uh and, and in the addict world Uh, they wisely have the notion that you can also be addicted to relationships and that your uh, dependence on relationships also has to be recovered from in addition to your dependence on substances, in addition to your dependence on bulimia. And so you have to uh, abstain from relationships. They'll say that when you're in early recovery, they say, do not involve yourself with a romantic partner. Don't do it because that's essentially just opening the door to relapse. And so now having said that, as someone who's outside the chemical dependency world, I'll say that I don't believe in that as dogma or as uh, always the case. You can certainly have two addicts in my mind as a couple go to rehab and recover just fine. But, uh, But there's also a lot of wisdom to saying that they need to split up. Well, um, I,
2: I think especially, I don't know that they knew this, but especially seeing that he was her enabler and she was his enabler from what they showed, right? right? Um, to, the but, point, to the point where it wasn't there, that one point where she was doing better uh, for a little second and he shows up and gives her heroin.
0: Right. But, you know, if both of them were on board and both of them really wanted to recover, then right. maybe it would have worked. Yeah. Paula, if you were an addict, would you want your boyfriend to go with you? you addicted boyfriend. If both of you were addicts. <laughs> if would, I were
1: a coke addict and a heroin addict. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, because like, you know, when we were talking about earlier where you do this bad thing together, it can be this real binding relationship factor, you know? Yeah, so bonding, I, yeah. I think she like feels safe with him. I mean, you would want to believe that your relationship could survive you getting clean. And that might be the only way you could believe it. Because if you go separately or if he... I mean you have to choose between yourself as a healthy person and your drugs and everything that's comfortable to you. So it's one more thing on the balance toward going back to doing drugs.
0: Right. I mean to me I I see I see you know, two sides of the coin. One is is that you definitely want to have your attachments there with you going through recovery. Because to lose that is an additional loss that you have to recover from. But on the other hand, what's the chance that two massive addicts are going to both hit bottom and desperately want to recover at the same time? Because that's basically what you need. Because mm-hmm. if either one of them is on the fence of recovery, they're going to drag the other person back into using. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so that's the hang up.
2: And he had a lot of symbolism in her uh, overall psychology because they were both in relationships when they got involved. So it was kind of like feeding into that kind of impulsive behavior. Uh, They were both very reckless individuals um, and very impulsive individuals. And again, this is just from what they showed, right? But uh, very impulsive, very reckless, uh, obviously both addicted. um, And you could even see this um, they, through her lyrics, and there's that one moment where, uh, what was it? The thing he, when they were really high, he cuts his arm. I don't know if on accident or not. Yeah, and then accident. she's like, "Well, I'll do it too." You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like it just seemed like in their case, it was like a Sid and Nancy type of situation.
0: Well, <laughs> the way that I see that is when you are so desperate as she was for closeness and security. You will do anything to have it. And when you're in a close relationship, you know, when she was in a close relationship with Blake, there would be challenges to that closeness. You know, they weren't perfect together. They would fight. And a way to cope with that is to use substances. But when you use substances, you tend to lose control of your emotions and fight more. And so it would be this cycle that she's recreating. Right. And so, so, yeah. So, she's massively famous. All the paparazzi, which is freaking crazy in England. I mean, we thought America was bad, but England is holy crap. And in the midst of all this, her grandmother dies. Who was basically her mother. She was extremely close to this woman. She, basic, she apparently was her emotional mother growing up, you know what I mean? And, and she dies. And she goes completely off the deep end at that point, right? She starts using more substances. She starts using her eating disorder even more um then then blake comes back as you pointed out paul i i just thought that was just hilarious it was like oh blake broke up with me and that was very telling too the way she reacted to the after blake broke up with her
1: i felt like they didn't even talk about the tattoo she got i was just like it's on her chest and it says blake and it's got like a little pocket yeah it's like i carry you around in my pocket blake yeah But like after a breakup, she gets that tattoo. That's insane.
0: Oh, she got it after they broke up? I
1: believe so. Like from the footage, I didn't see it when they were together. And then I only saw it afterwards, but I don't know for a fact.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They really portrayed her clinginess well. You know what I mean? And again, when you are insecure and you find someone that will pay attention to you and love you, you will hold on so tight because you're so desperate and you've been missing it your entire life and you'll regress. I mean, she seemed like like a young child next to him you know like a four-year-old clinging to her father you know because she needed that corrective experience given her childhood neglect
2: and it seemed like when he went back to her his girlfriend that's when she as a way to like in in her own words like put a final dagger in it went back to Nick you know and she she Saying about that And commented about it yeah. So it was like As we were talking about The self-defensive techniques Um She You know He hurts her by Okay you know what I'm going back to my old girlfriend And then she She tries to Do the same By going back to Nick Therefore unfortunately Using Nick In the process Right
0: so skipping to the end of the story, I didn't realize that she died so later in life. I, I, to me, it was like she was massively famous and then she died.
1: <laughs> How old was she when she died?
0: She was 28 and it was 2011 and uh, Back to Black came out four or five years before that. So, and she was already pretty famous in England before that and using substances a lot before that. I mean, she had a long run. It's amazing she lasted as long as she did, honestly. Yep. And so she was found dead in her room by her bodyguard. Her bodyguard apparently came in in the morning and, you know, nudged her and she didn't wake up, which was very common for her to do. Mm -hmm. And then he came back in at three, like, like hour, like five, six hours later and poked her again. And she was in the exact same position. And then he was like, "Uh oh, and you know, she had already died.
1: Oh my God. He probably felt so bad.
0: He did feel bad. Her heart had stopped. The doctor had said that she had a 0.42 blood alcohol level, which is, you know, four to five times that of the legal limit, which is in state of Washington, 0.08. Uh, you know, 0.4 uh, sounds like a lot, but to a, to a, you know, to an addict, it's actually not that much point. You know, you, you can actually, if, if you weren't a heavy drinker and you had a point four, you would be out cold and, you know, bad things would happen. But if you're a heavy drinker, point four, uh, you know,
2: well, I think. The point is that by itself, a point four is not like a guaranteed death for right. a heavy drinker.
0: Right. The reason why I'm saying that is a lot of people say, "Oh my God, point four! You know, no wonder she was dead." And it's like, no, it's it's actually it, it. What this tells me is that I mean, one is is that that it's it was probably higher before. You know when she fell asleep, but um, but really, I think it 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 seems to me, and I'm not a physician, that the combination of her bulimia, just the the the, the wear and t- the bulimia is very destructive to your body, and dying from bulimia and anorexia is actually very common. It's something like. 10 or 20% of people diagnosed with bulimia and anorexia will die f- just from it. You know what I mean? It's actually more likely you'll die from it than depression or something. You know how we wow. deal with suicide.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's, she's lacking in very necessary nutritional components. She has probably esophageal, like early stage esophageal cancer at some point, right? And she has um, repetitive stress to her heart for years. Like hardcore, you know, yeah. just abuse, 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 so I'm sure her, her heart muscles were not in great shape yeah, and then she probably you're right, like if she was point four when they an- analyzed her, yeah she was pre- she she probably drank like uh, like so much that she blacked out, and everything just came together in the perfect storm, yeah. unfortunately,
0: right, uh, yeah, I think it was kind of a freak accident because I'm sure she was that drunk many, many times yeah. pre- previous and on several other drugs. Paula, let me ask you one last question. So I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, okay, she's a woman, and she's and she was treated a certain way by the media, and really kind of soaked that in. Because you know, Kurt Cobain, you know, similar kind of story, uh, treated differently, I would say, than Amy Winehouse. Mm-hmm. Is this an example of women being treated differently, and therefore society is somewhat culpable for the pain she experienced?
1: I mean, there is some. Um There's been some discussion about within the arts, how like men's depression is more like respected, like, oh, he's a depressed artist. But women, it's like, oh, come on, cheer up, you know. And so that might be true. I'm trying to think if I have like a concrete example. of You
0: know, was Kurt Cobain ridiculed as much as as she was? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't
1: think that men are. Well,
2: to be fair, though. So she's coming up for years in a, in an, in, now for real, in an internet age where Kurt Cobain died before uh, the internet was even in colleges generally, you know? Yeah. So it's a different
1: time. That's true. That is a different time. But
0: but I'm just trying to imagine another, um, a male in that position being made fun of as much, you know? But maybe they would be.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. It's just, I felt like. And I didn't even, I didn't really even follow the story because I remember when, when the announcement came that she died, like it was so, like my understanding was one minute a song comes out about rehab. No time goes by and I'm doing air quotes here. And all of a sudden I hear that she's dead. Right. In reality, it was many years. How many five years or something? Yeah. But for me, it was kind of a very simplistic story. In reality, the people that were following it would have seen all these like, oh, geez, look at that picture. Oh my gosh, what a mess. Oh, look, look at this performance. Like the one they showed where she wasn't singing. Yeah. Like that. So, they, that, they, that you know what? That they happened that. several times. But they did make fun of, uh, Guns N' Roses guy when he started going a little bananas and would do shit like that. Remember? He would yeah. jump off the stage. He got in a fight with the one dude. He, he canceled shows. And I think he became the butt of jokes as well. And then Chinese democracy was never coming out. Um, so I, I'm not fully defending like, Women have not been made more fun of in similar situations. I'm just saying I don't know that Kurt Cobain is the right example.
0: Right, but it just seems like there's something different to the whole story, you know. Like if she was a man, would her handlers have treated her the way that they did treat her? You know, it's a question. That's a good. That's a good point because they um, were because she yeah. was she would not she hated being on tour and they yeah. would force her on tour. They would they would wait till she was passed out and then like put her on the plane like B A Baracus on on eighteen. <laughs> they, uh, while she's on stage trying to get off stage, her her bodyguards would push her back on on stage. Yeah, and I'm just trying to imagine if if you were, you know, Justin Timberlake, if your handlers would do that to you.
2: Although do you remember in the Kurt Cobain thing in the documentary because I never knew that he had these terrible stomach problems which might have been celiacs or something really bad like he had these terrible yeah. debilitating stomach problems. Yeah. And I seem to recall something about how um, he would get very little sympathy from the 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 com- the record
0: company and stuff like that. Yeah, but but some, but, but somehow it seemed like it seemed like a- Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse was particularly not in control of her life, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that other famous people seem like they would have been given that control. Well,
1: maybe she. I don't know. Maybe she wanted someone to do it all for her and make all like to take care of her, right. you know. But they weren't. They were being selfish about it. I don't know. It was really weird. And I feel like there's so many situations in life. Like I feel like everyone's worked at a job where the office, like some kind of insane situation is going on. You're like, I can't believe this is real. And it just takes one person to kind of lead this madness. And she was kind of leading her own madness. And everyone just let it happen.
0: Lastly, I'll say that... Many people would see this documentary and think that the result was inevitable, that she was bound to kill herself this way. And it certainly seems that way, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that it isn't. I've seen plenty of people like her recover. She could have been saved if she were given good, stable attachments, if the entire system, family, the handlers, the CEO, the boyfriends, if everyone was talking to a therapist, good therapists... And I'm not saying that all therapists... So cliche for therapists to say, they should have been in therapy. I'm not talking about just any old therapy. I'm talking about like coordinated, good, sound therapy uh, and with clients that actually want to make things better. She... After a, an extended period of recovery, which would have taken years, especially with bulimia and all the other things, she could have led a happy life. It would have been more boring, for sure. It would have been boring, but it would have been one with happiness and one with clear, you know, a clear mind. She could have been that way. I've seen many people recover that way. Imagine if she had a better diet and she had better sleep and, and her stress level was lower and she had better control over her life. Imagine if her attachments in her life weren't users and they really paid attention to her and the media wasn't breathing down her neck all the time. I think that it could have happened and it's a tragedy that it didn't.
1: Anything's possible for sure. You just look back and you're like, oh God, so many things could have been different. Like, ridiculously different.
2: Well, well, there have been stories, not like thousands, but there's been stories of uh, people that were famous musicians that have gone through heavy, heavy addiction and surfaced. And now they are older and might die a little younger than they might have, but they survived longer than freaking 28. Yeah. Um, there's also, sadly, many stories of the 27-year-old musicians that die. But yeah. I, I had a, a thought that, like, um, having friends, had had friends that are addicted and stuff, I, I've often felt like man, like you should, like I, I wish that it was something like if you um, if you're addicted, you have to go to like this attic jail for a few years <laughs> and you don't get out. <laughs> There's no rehab for 30 days. It's like a two year process or something. Mandatory but, because uh, that's the kind of, it feels like, it's like you need long enough for something to finally take hold. Yeah. Because she obviously went through bouts of Sobriety repeatedly, and yet...
0: Yeah, uh, I I agree. Because through our experience with addicts in our lives, we realize that even when we fight hard, and, and they fight hard, and they go to rehab, and they get clean, and they go to AA and NA, and they start working the steps, that they can easily just fall right back into the pattern. And you can have years of this in and out of rehab, and in and out of hope, and in the end they've they've never recovered and they need that that control of their life i mean i would i would go so far as to say wouldn't it be great and it's just, just like if i was dictator of the world you know what i mean <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we had an island that had no substances on it and you just had to go there but it was a beautiful island
1: what about like singapore yeah <laughs> <laughs> the
2: wrong one but yes <laughs> i mean it's not
1: an island but isn't it that no, all no, I'm drugs saying, are illegal
2: well i'm saying i bet you that there are t- Tons of drugs you can get there. Really?
1: I've just well, heard that they have like really severe punishments. So but they like also no have one, one of the
2: big... biggest black markets in the world.
0: Oh, oh really? Okay. Well, an island somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. And you got to go there and you're forced to go there. And, you know, you just sort of live with it. And, you you know, and you yeah. recover. Yes. And you, have, and you don't have to work because, honestly... You, It'd be better to pay someone to live on an island, somewhere than, than to deal with all the, the destruction. Cheaper. Yeah, that they deal in our own society.
2: I, I, I fantasized. There was someone in my life that, that had addiction problems. Uh, and I fantasized often, man, if I were like a billionaire, I would put him on a boat, all staffed with the right trustworthy people for like two years. Like seriously, like just in and, and, and the middle of the ocean. Great. It's just like a nice yacht and stuff, but no substances, period. You know. Right. But of course, this is all...
0: Now, what CD Fantastic. people, what chemical dependency treatment people will say is that doesn't fix the problem because as soon as they come out, they're going to start using it again. But, but, I, but what I'd say is sometimes that'll work, you know. I've seen it work with teenagers sometimes, you know, because one of the things you can do with kids is you can kidnap your kids and send them to uh, involuntary treatment in Washington State you can't involuntarily detain children for treatment teenagers but in other states you can
2: Oh you can't in the state you can't in Washington oh
0: but what what the way they get around it in Washington is you hire goons to kidnap your children and drive them across state lines and then involuntarily place them in, in treatment facilities in other states like Utah whoa yeah can you believe that?
1: That's so serious. That's I, I've I've worked. Serious. Do they tell them like we're this is what we're doing, or is it you yeah. just think you're getting kidnapped?
0: No, no, no. They tell you that you know, like you know, the the kid comes home. The parents say, okay, he's he's in the home, and then the goons show up, and then the kids like who are these guys? And the parents say, these guys are going to bring you to rehab. And sometimes the kids will be like, oh, okay. And sometimes the kids will fight and the goons will wrestle you to the ground and hog tie you and put you in the van and drive you all wow. the way. to yeah. yeah. It's intense. It's it's a part of society that does not get talked about. One element of this is this is only rich families because you got to be rich to afford goons Yeah, and rich to afford these um, these mental places. things are you're, pricey. Are you taking notes? Are you going to write? <laughs> I this?
1: just think I just love situations where
0: you could. You never should write a story heard like heard of that. that
1: situation, and it's just. I have a page called the Story Idea Orphanage, and it just is scrolling for like five minutes of all these crazy story ideas that I have.
0: You could investigate a real story like this and write about it, and be huge because, again, it sounds crazy, right? That your parents hire two big, you know, goons.
1: I would think of it as a fiction short story from the point of view of one of the goons. Oh, where you're just like this is my job. Cuz I love some people like this is my job is crazy, that'd you know? Be, that'd be awesome. Like this is what you do every day.
2: Yeah, that sounds like very cool because you could see the movie, it's like it starts with this guy, you think he's a bad guy, he's driving or he's in the passenger seat, they put on a mask or whatever. Yeah, like, what's going on? And they go oh, and they take this kid and then in the moment where it's revealed what they're doing, he goes, This is my job. Yeah. Blah 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 You know, and the voiceover comes in. Yeah. Dude, we should produce the movie. Yeah. Let's make let's
0: get him yeah, let's in. But right.
1: jazz, but with kidnapping.
0: Yeah. I'm good at kidnapping kids. I, kid- I was always good at kidnapping
1: kids. <laughs> oh whoa. <laughs>
0: All right. Any final words for Amy? Um, You're the Amy expert.
1: I know. I just if I I don't really believe in like an afterlife, so it's just like she was here, now she's gone. We still have her music, you know, and that's well.
0: There's that one song. If there's a rock and roll heaven, Uh, have you heard this song before? Nope. Oh my god, it's so funny. Do you know the song? I
2: maybe, but I
1: I I think so many people loved her, but not enough people loved her. Ah. Booyah. that's my final thought
0: well that does it for another episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining us out there and please take care of yourself because you deserve it bye bye